we're going to be in Daniel 3 today. Daniel 3 is one of those more um, familiar passages from Daniel. And sometimes that makes it harder to, to really dig in and study because you feel like you've heard it all before. You feel like there's not a, um, you know, what I've, I've already got it set in my mind. What else is there for me out of this? Um, so I want to challenge you today temporarily forget the sermons the sunday school lessons the the things you've heard before as as we dig in we're going to dig in inductively again and we're going to let we're going to let the word speak for itself um i should warn you i have three kids home on virtual school today normally they do great the potential is that because i'm occupied that we may have some issues and interruptions, but we'll hopefully they'll be uh, they'll be good. So we'll see. But anyway, so we're gonna dig in. I'm gonna start by reading Daniel three um, one through seven. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was sixty cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the peoples heard proclaimed aloud, and the herald, sorry, proclaimed aloud, "You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so, as we, as we start, and we do those, those five W's and the H, we're going to start with where and so I'm going to ask questions like I always do so just be sure to unmute yourself um, if you're on a computer most of the time you can just push a space bar and it temporarily unmutes you um, and and if you want to do that uh, so where where does this take place plain of Durham Dura in the province of Babylon yeah, the plain of Dura. So that was that was an easy one. The exact location of this is not known um, because Dura literally means just wall or dwelling. Um, but it's believed there was a, a an Assyrian historian named Julius Alpert, and he he believes he discovered it uh, to be a site about sixteen miles to the southeast of Babylon. Likely, this would have been. A, a, away from the city so that this statue, it's a massive statue, so that it could be kind of hidden uh, so that it could be unveiled at this event so that people wouldn't see it before he was ready for this big, big event. Um, one thing to note as we think about this, this image was made of gold, it would have required a furnace to have been built nearby in order to work with the gold to heat any bricks for the base, uh, any other metals that were used to build the statue. So the punishment of a furnace was was a matter of convenience as much as it was a matter of, of brutality and cruelty. Um, we've talked about King Nebuchadnezzar's cruelty in the past with this. Um, so that would have been one aspect of it, but it was also, hey, it's here, let's do this. Uh, type of thing. So, when did this chapter take place? It's 
This one's kind of a trick question because the text doesn't explicitly give us this information. Up until now, we've had it's in the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar, the third year of King Nebuchadnezzar, and this one, it doesn't tell us exactly. Um, we do know a couple of things that can help us figure this out. I have my timeline. Oh, there it is. Um, if you if you look on your timeline, you remember King Nebuchadnezzar down here on the bottom. He he ruled from 605 BC to 562 BC. So we know Daniel three occurred at least in that uh, that time time frame. And there are two main main ideas about the timing of this. Some people believe it was later in um, in King Nebuchadnezzar's reign when the statue is built and because King Nebuchadnezzar is becoming more and more prideful of all the great things he's accomplished. So they would say it occurs after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 586 BC. They would say that that, that was when um, when he decided he he had destroyed this other god because because that was that was part of the idol worship, right? He had destroyed this other god because he had destroyed this temple, and so he was building his own image because of that. This is a very logical and reasonable uh, uh, conclusion. Other scholars believe that this occurs closer to the events of of Daniel chapter two. And so as a review for last week, in Daniel 2, we, we read about King Nebuchadnezzar and, and that troubling dream that he had. Um, he saw that statue that was made of gold and silver and bronze and clay, uh, and iron and clay. And, and so if you, if you think about that, that one took place early in King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, around 602 B.C., and the only part that King Nebuchadnezzar was of that statue was the head of gold. And then, King, and then Daniel, in his interpretation of the dream, he tells the king that that head of gold was going to be conquered by an inferior kingdom, which was represented by that chest of arms and silver, uh, uh, the chest and arms of silver. And so while the king was happy to know the answer to the meaning of the dream, he was, he was glad to have an interpretation. He probably wasn't happy with what that meant. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is told, you're merely a golden head and you're not going to endure. And this is why some scholars believe he builds an entire statue of gold in response to this, that he wanted to... He, he wanted it to be all about him again, and, and he wanted to overcome that idea of, of uh, he was prideful. He wanted to overcome that, that idea uh, of something being able to take over, um, to conquer him. So my, my birthday was a few weeks ago. I asked Ray for a bird feeder for outside my kitchen window so that I could attract a few more birds. I already had a bunch that would, would come and sit in the bush, particularly in the winter, they would eat some of the little berries off this bush. Um, but that way I could, I could watch these birds while I was doing dishes or just cutting up vegetables or, or whatever. Um, as is usual, because my husband is an amazing gift giver, Ray went above and beyond. He did research to find what kind of feeder I needed to start with in order to to have the birds, not really train them, but for them to know that the feeder was there and how to eat it and all those things. He also bought me a guide to Pennsylvania birds so that I can identify them. And then he bought me a, an outdoor motion activated camera so that I don't even have to be standing at my window to watch my birds. I can be sitting right here and watch it on my Echo Show or I can watch it from my iPad from wherever. It's great, a lot of fun. Um, and, and he will often find me staring out the window or sitting on my iPad scrolling through my bird videos. So anyway, 
hopefully this works. I'm going to show you a video of a uh, of one of my uh, it's a female northern cardinal and a white-throated sparrow because I know those things because of my book that he got me. So Let's see if I can do this. Wow. Okay, short video, right? But, but this cardinal, she has gotten very territorial. She, um, particularly with a couple of the sparrows now. And well, she's she's eager to show them who's the boss of the feeder. Um, she seems to think that she is the queen, when and when she eats, she makes it a point to to show that. Um, and, and she did this for the first time just a few days after I had put the feeder out and I haven't run out of seed. The, the snow yesterday, I had, I've had to dump the snow and put more seed. So it, there's been a few hours, but this was all before the, before this snow. Um, and, and so there was really no reason for this for this cardinal to be so territorial. Now, before you worry too much about the sparrows, about half or more of my of my feed of videos is the sparrows just sitting in the middle of the platform feeder and just eating constantly. They're getting plenty of seed. No need to worry about them. But but I didn't share this video just to share how well my husband did with my birthday present. Um, as I watched this video and others of this, this same cardinal, it made me think about jealousy and the things we sometimes do to make ourselves look better and stronger and more important than we are. And, and, and that's, that's the way that Nebuchadnezzar was thinking, right? He needed something to make himself look grand. And that's why, that's why I fall more into the category of this incident happening closer to the events of chapter 2 than closer to the following the destruction of the temple. Um, either one is very reasonable, very, a, a very logical, very acceptable uh, answer. But those are just, that's just in thinking about and particularly, I mean, literally watching these birds, this is... This is what I've I've sort of come to. That's the conclusion I've come to. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man. He had just heard a prophecy that was not good for him, and he struggled with how to respond. And we're going to see that he continues to struggle with pride as we look at, at chapter 4 as well. Um, so, so we did the where, we did the when, and so what was it that King Nebuchadnezzar does in these verses? This one's not a trick question, I promise. Oh, it shows that he's, you know, building the statue for of himself and putting the order out to, you know, tell the people they have to worship. So he made the image. He set it up, and he commanded the people. Right. He made the, a big statue. Not just a, not just a statue, not, not just this little thing that... It was a massive statue. 60 cubits is about 90 feet. In other words, it's about as big as a blue whale if it were standing upright on its tail. That's a massive statue. And then it was made of gold. There probably wouldn't have been enough gold in the whole kingdom to, well, there definitely wouldn't have been enough gold in the whole kingdom to make it solid gold. So it was, it was probably a, a overlaid uh, on a, a wooden structure or stone of some sort, uh, some sort of structure, and then the gold was just over top of it. But you've got a 90-foot high statue that is nine feet wide 
lots and lots of gold, even if it's not solid gold, it's still a lot of gold. And it's out in this plane. And so the sun would have been shining. It would have been something that was really dazzling to look at. You know, you, you think about, we were talking at, at dinner last night about being distracted by shiny things. Um, the, that's, this was the distraction. This was the shiny thing. Um, it was, would have been a very impressive monument. Now it's unknown whether this was an image of King Nebuchadnezzar or an image of uh, Marduk or just a, a, an obelisk thing shaped like the Washington Monument kind of thing. We, we don't know exactly what shape it took on, um, but what we do know is that it was very clearly an idol of some sort. Uh, and and this, was, this was a common thing uh, for, for uh, kings, ancient kings. The, the Sphinx in Egypt was a large, uh, a large statue. The, the, um, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world is the Colossus of Rhodes was a massive statue. Um, so this wasn't uncommon, but, but then he wanted, uh, he commanded. It wasn't just what he wanted. He, he was forcing everyone to be there from for every level of authority in his government to be there and to gather and to worship, to bow down and worship that, this golden image whenever they heard the music be played. And the word worship is used 11 times in this chapter. 11 times where he is saying, I want you to lie down on the ground, face down, in reverence and submission to this image. That's what, that's what he's telling them. When he's using the word worship, that's what he's meaning. And the king gave a command and had the expectation that the people would obey. And to most of the people, remember they were polytheistic. They had many, many gods. This was just one more thing to worship. What did it matter? Right? It wasn't that there was a big, um, a, a big ordeal. It didn't matter who it was or what it was. It was one more idol, one more, one more thing to worship. Um, and so everyone did as they were told, or did they? And so, so then we go to um, verses 8 through 12. I had to make sure I had the, the right passage. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so who is it here that has returned to the spotlight. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were rewarded with prestigious positions for their role in, in the last chapter in helping to praying with Daniel to interpret the dream. And then the other one that, that came back is, is the, the Chaldeans. These were the wise men. These were the men who could not help with the dream in chapter 2. But who is noticeably missing in this passage? Daniel. Yeah, Daniel's not there. So, so his name not being mentioned here does not mean that he bowed down. 
based on the rest of the book of Daniel, we know that there is no way he would bow down and worship this image. And so he's why is he not included in this passage? Why didn't he get thrown into the furnace? Um, for that, if you look back at, at um, Daniel 2, verse 49, it said, Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the, the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So here we've got all the government officials about 16 miles away from the city, 16 miles, they didn't have buses and, and things like that to, to transport everybody. So this would have been, it, it would have been an ordeal for even the king to get there. Um, so likely, because of the way that verse is worded, we know that Daniel's responsibilities were in the palace. And likely with everyone else gone to Dura, someone needed to stay behind and make sure that the government still ran. And so that's across the board, that's what the, the scholars and, and theologians and all the people smarter than me think, and so we're going with that. That's where, that's where Daniel was, um, and that's why we don't see Daniel, but we do know there is no way he would have bowed down to this image. And, and we see that even when we get to, well, we will see that when we get to Daniel 6 with the lion's den. Uh, it's, it's the same type of, of, of a response. But, what, but in, in verse 7, it tells us all the peoples fell down and worshipped. And then, and then we find out not everybody did. Why do you think the king didn't see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? There were many people there, and I doubt that he could view everything. So he had people like spotters in the crowd. Yeah, the, the crowd was vast, and he probably didn't see three men out of hundreds or thousands that are standing there, um, especially if he was also bowing down to the ground. And these three men were not trying to make a scene. They didn't want to make this a spectacle. They didn't want to make it a big deal. They were, they were standing firm. We talked about that uh, in chapter one, standing firm in their convictions. And, and um, Dr. Daniel Aiken, he's, he is um, president of Southeastern Seminary, but he wrote a commentary, the uh, Christ-Centered Exposition Commentary. He says that this was a quiet act of civil disobedience. They weren't trying to make it known to anybody else. This was between them and God. Um, but, but some of these Babylonian officials, some of these wise men saw it. Um, likely, another reason that I feel like it occurred earlier rather than later is that likely there was jealousy involved with these three Jewish exiles. They had quickly risen to success, and these other wise men weren't trusted quite as much. Um, but there must have been also just some suspicion that these three would not bow down. And so they were, they were also kind of waiting for it and watching for it. Because remember, to worship in this time meant you were laying face down on the ground. If you're face down on the ground, your eyes are looking at dirt. But they noticed these three men. So there's, there's a level that they were waiting for it as well. Um, and, and uh, oh yeah, sorry. I had to find where I was on my page. Um, so they knew what what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, but Daniel wasn't there, they knew what they stood for. 
Uh, Warren Wearsby, he says, to bow before the image even once, no matter what excuse they might give, would have destroyed their witness and broken their fellowship with God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down to the golden image even once because it would leave to serving Nebuchadnezzar's false gods for the rest of their lives. They remembered the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. They remembered, you shall have no other gods before me. They remembered, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That was what was in the minds of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As a brief aside here, if you um, looking at Matthew 4, and I'm not going to have you turn there or anything, but this is the temptation of Jesus. This is another familiar, um, familiar story, familiar passage that you would have heard um, multiple times. This was the, this was when um, Satan came and tempted Jesus three times in three different ways after a, um, after a 40 day fast. The, the first was about food. The second was physical protection and jumping from the temple. And then we come to the third in verse 8 where it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jesus did not bow down even once. They knew what was at stake, just like Jesus did. They stood true to God, no matter what the physical consequences would be. They knew that the spiritual consequences would be so much worse. And so the, the, these, these Chaldeans, these wise men, they... They see the king, or they see these these men, these three men not obeying the king. And and in verse 12, they they remind the king that these were the men that he picked. Right? You gave them special privileges. But then what were the claims that that the wise men made about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? There it's all in verse 12, I think. They didn't pay attention. I like that. They paid no, no attention to the king and right. did not serve the gods. They, they did not pay attention to the king. They did not serve his gods. And they did not worship the statue. In essence, they are forcing the king to act. And so to see how King Nebuchadnezzar responds, we'll read um, verses 13 through 18. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So they are still at the statue. They are still there with the furnace nearby, and the king calls these three Jewish men to him. 
And what's his state of mind? He's angry. Yeah, he's, he's in a furious rage. He's angry. This is extreme anger. Because somebody defied him. And not just someone, but his own high officials. In front of a huge crowd. Right? They're there would have been some embarrassment also that he didn't see it himself. That it had to be somebody else bringing it to him. Um, this, he, but despite the king's fury, despite this extreme anger, he gives them a second chance. There is some relationship, some trust there that has made the king want to give them a second chance. Um, he, he, and, and so the, how do the three respond to this, to this opportunity? They tell him they're not going to do it. Right. They say, I, you don't need to play the music again. It's not going to change. It's not going to change anything for us. Um, they were again respectful to the king. They didn't want to make this a huge deal. They they didn't get angry at what they were being asked to do. They didn't make a scene. They didn't argue with him about the fairness or about what that means for the future of the Jewish people. They didn't hide out and make excuses not to go to this big event. They were there. They listened. They obeyed to the extent that they didn't cross the line set forth for them by God. And then they accepted their fate. I love their response here. They didn't assume anything about God or his will for their lives. They didn't presume that they would be saved. They didn't bargain with God and, and, and make a deal with him to try to save themselves. They simply believed that God was able, but that they would trust even if he chose not to. But this was not a decision that they would have made on the spot. This is like the food in chapter one. This was a decision made well before the event came to pass. Again, Dr. Aiken says, it takes courage not to compromise and your mind needs to be made up before the pressure comes. If you wait until the moment of truth, you may find out it is too late. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are also known as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they did not forget who they were. This passage refers to them by their Babylonian names, but they did not forget that they were Jewish first. They did not forget that they were God followers first. They, um, they believed in God. They knew the line they would not cross with the law. And they had specific scripture to back up their stand. They knew that God would not want them to compromise their faith and bow down, even if it meant death. I remember several years ago in, in 2014, I looked up the, the timing. I remember having a conversation with Andrew. He was eight years old at the time. We had been talking about pastors in Houston, Texas, whose sermons had been subpoenaed and they were to be turned over to the city based on an ordinance about discrimination, hate speech, um, and things like that. So in particularly, it was, it was concerning um, homosexuality and gender identity. And Ray and I were talking and we had said something about the pastors being arrested if they didn't turn over their sermons. That was, that was what was, um, what was gonna happen. That was what was being threatened. And Andrew didn't understand all of what this meant he, he was eight, right? He didn't understand all the consequences, but he still understood that this could be concerning, that there was something wrong with this. And so at eight years old, my son learned the importance of standing up for what the Bible says, even if it means that there are consequences with the government. I still remember him looking up at Ray with those innocent eight-year-old eyes saying, so you could go to jail because you preach about God? 
with much assurance that we were a long way away from that happening here and reminding him that we have the Constitution for protection, we were able to use the opportunity to teach Andrew the importance of knowing the Bible and knowing what it said and being confident in what you believe because it's, that is more important than whether or not we go to jail. My son grew up a lot that night. His childhood innocence of his dad being invincible like Superman was knocked down and was, was taken down a notch. But in the time since, we have had some great conversations with Andrew. Um, not too long ago, he came in and he said, Dad, what if we disagree on something that the Bible says? What if I look at something and I say, I, I don't see what's wrong with that? And Ray responded to him, son, if you have studied what the Bible says and you are confident that what you believe about is what God is saying, then you and I can disagree on it. We encouraged him to go to the word. Uh, and, and that's more important. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Ladies, the story in Daniel chapter 3 isn't about a miracle that happens in a fiery furnace. It is just as much about the faith of these three men that literally took a stand. They did not stay standing to oppose the government or the king because he gave them a second chance. They had a good rapport with the king, right? They they didn't stay stand they didn't stay standing to prove anything about God. They flat out said, "We know he can, but we don't know if he will." They didn't stay standing so that the miracle in the furnace could occur. They stayed standing because this is what brought glory to God. They stayed standing because they knew that no matter what happened to their physical bodies, their spiritual self was much more important. They stayed standing knowing that while God had the power to save them from certain death, it didn't mean that he would. This is the kind of faith that I want to strive for. This faith that leads one to do the right thing no matter what the consequence may be. This faith that knows that living for God every moment is better than compromise in a single moment. This faith that trusted God's plan so completely that there was no fear of him making a mistake, even if that led to their death. All this great stuff, and we haven't even made it to the furnace yet, right? <laughs> so let's read about the furnace, uh, starting in verse 19 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was harsh, or was urgent, sorry, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So what does, what, what is, how is uh, King Nebuchadnezzar described there in verse 19? Furious. Furious. He was even more mad than he was before. This was the, okay, no more Mr. Nice Guy. You have crossed the line. And he wanted to destroy them, to completely obliterate them. Now, a furnace would have been hot anyway. But, but he wanted it so hot that it wouldn't leave a trace of anything behind. These, this type of furnace could have reached a temperature of 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. We use a, a wood stove as our primary heat source in the winter. We have electric baseboard heat as well, but electric heat is expensive. And so 
we've had a lot to learn about fires and wood stoves when we moved in, but we figured out a few things. We found what worked for us. We made it happen. And then one year, the, the insert, the wood stove insert, um, it cracked. We needed to get a new wood stove. So we got the new one. The installer was talking about how this one would burn hotter and would use less wood and keep the chimney cleaner because of how much better it was than our old one. And he knew what he was talking about. We had less ash left behind in the box and the chimney sweeps noticed it looked better. Uh, we could even tell from the pictures they gave us in their little report thing. King Nebuchadnezzar wanted, some people think, oh, he made it hot. That wouldn't actually make the, it, they would suffer more, they would live longer if it weren't as hot, right? It would be more suffering, it would be more painful. He wasn't thinking about the pain. He wasn't thinking about any of that. He wanted them gone and not a trace to be left. That, that was, he, he wanted to blot them out from all of history. And so then he had his strongest men be the ones to bind them. Why would he choose the strongest men? His mighty men, I think is what it says. He probably thought they were going to resist. He would have expected four of them. Yeah, he, yeah. he would have I mean, expected some, some resistance, definitely. He didn't trust them <clears throat> to go in easily. Do you think there may have been something in the back of his mind that he expected their God to do something? He had, he had seen God before. He had seen God act before with this, with this dream. He had, he had no doubt by this point heard about the food issue from, from Daniel chapter 1. So there may have been a part of him that was expecting God to do something. And he thought that his mighty men might be stronger than the almighty God. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had soundly defeated Israel, and so it only seemed reasonable to assume that his gods were superior to any god of the Hebrews. Um, and so, so here it is. They are, uh, the way the, the furnace would have been built sort of into a, a hillside. Now, it was on a plain, so they actually had to build the, build this mound to go up to the top of the furnace. Um, so there would have been the opening at the top and then the opening at the front where they could actually, the men could actually work with the metals and, and do what needed to be done. Um, and so so here they are wearing clothing. The, I mean, you think about pictures of clothing that you've seen at that time. This clothing would have burned up in no time. It's super hot hot enough to kill the soldiers who are outside the furnace. And they throw in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and not only were they still alive, the ropes that had tied them have, have disappeared. They were obliterated the way that the king wanted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be, relate, be obliterated. But not only were they still alive, they were walking around, still in their clothing that hadn't burned, with a fourth person. And so how is the fourth person described? Like the son of the gods. Like a son of the gods. Like an angel. Um, many believe this is known as a Christophany a pre-incarnate, pre-birth appearance of Jesus Christ. Um, but what's, I, I really appreciated this quote from Dr. Aiken. He said, the God who did not deliver them from the fire was the God who met them in the fire and delivered them out of the fire. And so then we'll see what happens after God met them in the fire. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, starting in verse 26, 
Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin, for there is, there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And so what was King Nebuchadnezzar's response? He said, your God rocks. Come out of here. Come out and come here. <laughs> yeah, it was basically a, wow, what just happened? Get out here. He called the men out of the fire. He was amazed at their God. He blessed their God. And then he made a, a new decree about God. <laughs> but he gave God a name. He called God something. What did he call God? The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He called him the, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But before that, in verse 26, what did he say? He is the most high God. Most high God. Once again... King Nebuchadnezzar has affirmed the power of God, affirmed the effectiveness of faith in him, and once again he experienced conviction when he met the Most High God. But remember last week, like we talked about, conviction is not the same thing as conversion. Um, this, But this event, so, so it didn't change King Nebuchadnezzar he was still uh, he was still a pagan king he was still polytheistic it was still one of the gods but this one was most high god so this event um but this event would have served as an encouragement to the jews who were living in exile their city had fallen their society had not been following god but god used this to not just bring conviction to king nebuchadnezzar but to bring conviction to the Jewish exiles who were living in Babylon. They would have seen that God did not leave them or forsake them, and this could have been a turning point for many of them. You know, Pastor Matt, in his sermon on Sunday, preached from the last part of John 15 and about being a witness for Christ. And, and I'm going to read John 15, 26 and 27 again. It says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father... He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. These three men were bringing glory to God and bearing witness to an entire nation about their God. They, they didn't want the spotlight, but they were brought into the spotlight. And they didn't boast or brag about what all their God had done. They stayed standing to honor their commitment to God and to bear witness to to that God with every aspect of their lives. Warren Wiersbe says, By one act of faith, the three Jewish men became witnesses of the true and living God to the entire Babylonian Empire. And that's, that's what, what we're called to. to when, when Pastor Matt was talking about being a witness, this is what he means. He means stay standing like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that finishes up 
chapter three. So then for your um, Daniel at a glance chart, what are some ideas for what the theme of Daniel chapter three could be? Stand firm. Stand firm. Is that page seven? Where Where is the page you're referring? 34. Once again, you said, what, what should we put down in there? So this is, this is, if, if you remember theme isn't, there isn't just one right answer. So you can put, um, Elizabeth said stand firm. You can put stand firm. There's, the, there, but there are other ones. Um, one of the ones that I came up with is God is always present with us in the fires of opposition. You know, there are multiple things you could put. You need to find what it is that you're going to walk away with from Daniel chapter 3. Any other ideas for the theme? Another one I wrote down was based on verse 18, that it was just because God doesn't do it doesn't mean he can't do it. All right. Well, I'm going to turn it over to Elizabeth, who is going to lead our discussion from our homework questions last week and I'm going to go down and check on Catherine who has been peeking her head through the doorway a couple of times so I will be right back in just a minute. How many of you listened to 